0: Um, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine, and just an encouraging word about VBS. It's coming up quickly, and we got all the uh, the uh, main stuff, uh, some of the main stuff done um, with the uh, prints and all those things. They're all they're all ready to go pretty much. You just got to get them dry mounted. But um, Saturday basically is just about helping prepare some of the uh, decorations, things like that. And you don't have to be an artiste to come out and do that. Um, if you are, that's great. But um, there's lots of things that need to be done. And we're going to have a couple work days over the next couple weeks on Saturdays. And so if you're able to make those, we would appreciate. And also, if you're interested in serving in VBS, you can talk to myself or uh, uh, Mary, Tom, uh, anybody who's on the VBS team. But as we turn our hearts to Romans chapter 9 this morning, uh, last week we looked at uh, the the basic message of why God's word has not failed. And um, today we want to look at it's time to examine your faith. Um, As we were going through the the passage last week, verses 6 to 13, we're going to spend a couple more weeks here, but. last week we, we looked at the reason that we should rejoice in these verses. Some people come to Romans chapter 9 and they go, ah, too much theology. I'm just going to go over that or mess over it. And so they, they skip verses chapter 10, 9, 10, and 11 usually and, and pick up in verse chapter 12. Um, so they leave off in chapter 8 and they pick up in chapter 12 and they think all oh, is good. But they're missing so much. And um, last week, we basically looked at this way of reduc- introduction and review. Um, the reason that we should rejoice in this, this chapter, in the following chapters, is that it's God's revelation of who he is. It really speaks to his character, um, that he is the only totally perfect and glorious being in the universe. And that the, the, these messages in this chapter, these words, were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he wants us to understand what these verses mean. Secondly, we should rejoice in these truths because Jesus did. Um, He said in Luke chapter 10 verse 21 that it says that Jesus greatly rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And the the truth that made him rejoice was this. um, That the Father whom he calls Lord of heaven and earth had hidden the truth of knowing him from the wise and had revealed it to the babes. So Jesus is actually rejoicing in the fact that God did that. And and Jesus and God are the only ones that know why. But we can be assured that whom the Son wills to reveal, uh, whom the Father reveals the Son to, he, he will be revealed indeed. And so Jesus rejoiced in these truths. Also, thirdly, we said that they should make you rejoice because Paul is using them to explain our salvation. To explain basically why we are secure, why we are our salvation is something that we can count on, that's certain. We open with the hymn Blessed Assurance today. Okay? What a wonderful thing it is to go to bed at night, lay your head on the pillow, knowing that your salvation is secure. That you don't have to worry about, you know, the, the devil or anybody else stealing it or messing it up in any way. And so we need to be reminded of these truths. And see, the problem that we're encountering here in chapter 9, verses uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11, basically, Paul and his, his readers, he knew, were asking this question if God's promises to bless the Jews are certain, then why are all these Jews rejecting Christ if he's the Messiah? That didn't play well in their minds. And that leads to another question Does their rejection of Jesus mean that God's promises can fail? We looked at this last week. And if his promises to Israel can fail, well, what does that mean about our salvation? Maybe when he says nothing can separate us from his love, well, maybe that'll fail too. See, that's where they were going in their thinking. And so Paul is arguing why God's word cannot fail. And we went over that last week, and we basically came up with three or two reasons. God's word cannot fail First of all, because he is the only sovereign of the universe who always accomplishes his purpose. Next week, we're going to start a little mini-series working on these verses and the next ones celebrating God's sovereignty. Sometimes we forget to celebrate the fact that our God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful, that he always keeps his promises, that he is absolutely sovereign. If he purposes to do something, but he can't pull it off, then he's not sovereign. If anything is left to uncertainty, then he's not sovereign. If Satan or demons or, or some other evil power or being can mess up God's purpose, can mess up God's plan, then he is not the total sovereign God of the universe. To put it another way, if God has to relinquish control over the course of history, We said this to the free will of man, then history may not turn out exactly how God planned. We don't believe that. That can't be true, because God is sovereign. For God's promise to hold true that absolutely nothing can separate us from his love that is in Christ Jesus, God has to be able to carry out his sovereign purpose. In spite of all the attempts of Satan, wicked sinners to thwart it. God's sovereignty means that he is free to plan, to choose, and to carry out his plan. And no one is able to thwart his plan. That's a wonderful truth. Secondly, God's word of promise to the Jews cannot fail because he always accomplishes his purpose through his free choice, through a remnant, according to his grace. And we looked at four things that Paul taught us last week. God always accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his choice of a remnant. And we saw that in in Israel. God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his power, not through man's ability. Key point. Thirdly, we saw where Paul taught us that God accomplishes his sovereign purpose through his free choice. We may not like his choice, but guess what? You're not God, and neither am I. He gets to choose whoever he wants. He gets to plan whatever he wants. Why? Because he is absolutely holy in his choices. He's absolutely perfect. He can't do anything wrong. God is holy. Fourthly, we said that God accomplishes his sovereign purpose according to his grace. Grace is something that we, that getting something that we don't deserve, unmerited favor. Mercy is God withholding something that we do deserve, his judgment. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his mercy. We'd be lost without it, beloved. Totally lost. So when we come to these verses that we're going to read here, verses 6 through 13, I want you to be looking at a couple things. First of all, I want you to consider natural Israel and spiritual Israel. I want you to understand the, the difference between spiritual children and actually those who are truly God's children. Uh, and so we're, we're going to see this play out in the next couple of weeks, but follow along in Romans chapter nine, verse six, as we read down to verse uh, 12. But as it But it it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son and not only so but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man our father Isaac our forefather Isaac though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel, the distinction between those who seem to be spiritual children and those who actually are, is very critical. It's critical to understanding the text that comes next in Romans. But in order to see it, you almost have to step, step back, take a step backwards and see what Paul is saying. Because he's really dealing with a problem here faced by himself and the other earlier evangelists of the church. The preachers of the gospel. What faith mainly did the original Christians come from? Jewish. They were Jewish. And so they are naturally being, they they, they are naturally, they began obeying this great commission that Jesus gave them. And who do you think they witnessed to first? Probably the Jews. Probably their own families. Jewish family members, Jewish friends, Jewish neighbors. And so the promises of the Messiah were to Israel... And since Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, according to their belief and understanding, Israel should have been willing to embrace the Messiah. It kind of makes sense. But guess what? Israel as a whole did not embrace the Messiah. And as time went on, the people who were becoming Christians and the largest number of emerging Christian churches were not from the Jewish background. They were overwhelmingly Gentile. And so this was a a disappointment to these early evangelists of the church. And even a great sorrow, as we read in the first couple verses there, where where Paul opens up and he says, man, I wish I could, you know, give him my salvation somehow, even though that's impossible. His heart was sorrowful for his countrymen because they had not understood, came to the understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. But even more than that, there was a, a theological problem. The promises of God were to Israel. And yet Israel as a whole was being unresponsive to the promises of God. And so what did they conclude? They, they began to ask questions like this. Does this mean that God's promises to Israel has failed? Does this mean maybe that God has failed? I listened to... Uh, uh, talk radio once in a while. I was listening to, to uh, a, a radio host the other day, and he got into some theological stuff, which was, I mean, it totally blew me away that he said this. He said, I don't believe God is sovereign. I don't believe God is all-powerful. I thought, wow. And this is a guy that sometimes even quotes Bible Bible verses on his, on his program, I'm not saying he's a Christian, by the way. I'm just saying that he had kind of a spiritual element to his program. But he said that, and I thought, man, that's such a broad statement to make. See, some people believe that God is impotent in the face of unbelief. They were asking questions. Did this mean that the promises of God could not be trusted? I mean, if if his promises to Israel is not coming true, then, then maybe... His promises aren't good across the board. Maybe in the matter of salvation, God can change his mind. See, this is a problem that Paul wrestles with in the middle section of Romans, chapters 9, verses 11. And and sometimes the church, unfortunately, has come to faulty conclusions. Some people believe today in what they call replacement theology which is not biblical at all. And they say, well, when the church came, then God replaced Israel with the church. And so all the promises to Israel now are fulfilled through the church. That's not true. That's a lie. God is not done with Israel. His promises to Israel will be true. Just not maybe in our time frame. They will come true. and the bible is very the, the Bible is very clear about that, so don't fall for that line. it seems logical, but it 's not it 's wrong it 's not biblical and there's been different arguments that people raise up to this um, some believe that the promises of God were not made to all physical descendants of Abraham, but only to those whom God had elected to salvation and to whom he had therefore implanted or was implanting life. That seems like a novel idea. See, not all Israel was true Israel. And this was something that had already been established in the Old Testament. In the following verses, when we look at these, Paul shows a distinction. He goes back to the patriarchs themselves. He he refers back to the Old Testament. Why does he do that? Because he wants wants them to show this isn't something that's new. Every Jew was aware of the contrast made by the prophets between the nation as a whole and the remnant. I mean, even in the declining days of ancient Jewish history when they overthrew the northern kingdom the Assyrians did in 721 BC and the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians in 586 BC I mean it was very clear even way back then that entirely, pretty much the nation of Israel was apostate there was something wrong only a few Jews gave any indication of being among God's genuine people That's why they came under the judgment of God. And it was the same way when Christ came on the scene. The nation of Israel as a whole was going about its business, but they didn't have any true faith. And just as most people today, both Jew and Gentile, we do the same thing today. There's just individuals who are sincerely Christian. Truly converted people. Back then you think of Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth, Zachariah, Simeon, Anna. It says in Luke chapter 2 verse 38 that they were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. They haven't given up on God. And when Jesus appeared on the scene to begin his public ministry, he too made that distinction. In fact, one of the earliest things recorded of him is in John chapter 1. Look over there with me. John chapter 1 verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43. We're told here how Jesus called Philip to be one of his disciples and how Philip immediately found his friend, Nathaniel. Look at what it says here, beginning in verse 43 of John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to me, follow me. Remember those words. Follow me. Verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethesda, Bethsaida, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In verse 46, it says, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, look at what he says of Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, wow, here comes a true Israelite. He's different. He's different than the rest. He made a distinction he wasn't saying, oh, all, all Israel's it. No. He said, this, this man's different. He's a true Israelite. And that's the distinction here that Paul is making in this chapter. In chapter, in, back to Romans chapter 9. So we shouldn't overlook the fact that Paul has already begun to make this contrast in the book of Romans. We saw it all the way back in the second chapter when we were going through that. He was trying to show that even highly moral and religious Jews need the gospel, just like the Gentiles. He didn't make any distinguish. He said, "Because they're neither the law which they fail to keep, nor, in that case, he specifically was talking about circumcision, the outward mark of the covenant people of God, that can't save you. Circumcision, just like every other religious ceremony, has value only if it corresponds to the internal transformation. It'd be like if you came up to me and said, hey, I want to get baptized. My first question would be what? Why? Well, because my mom did it. Wrong question. Wrong answer. Well, because I want to be saved. Wrong answer. See, we don't baptize people here in this church because they want to get saved. Because baptism doesn't save you. <laughs> All this baptism is, is an outward sign of an inward change. And what they did early on in the church was they would do baptisms out in the public, the river, or whatever. A lot of churches still do that. I was baptized in a creek in Pennsylvania. At the end of March, April, I think it was. Still snow on the ground. If I wasn't saved when I went in that water, I definitely was saved when I got out, because that was cold water. But what was it? It was a testimony to people who were gathered there watching. Well, this this person's making, there's a change that happened. And he wants to follow Christ now. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, he says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So what saves you? What saves you is the fact that God transforms your heart. He gives you the gift of faith. And you believe in Christ. And you acknowledge your sin. And you turn to Him in repentance. Turning from your sin and to the Savior. I mean, how could it be any otherwise? I mean, God doesn't only deal with our appearance, right? That's a truth that was taught in the Old Testament. God looks at what? Not the outward, but the inward. So God is not deceived by ceremonies. He's not deceived by you coming every week and sitting here in a chair and listening to a sermon. That doesn't make you a Christian. So what is required? What is required for one to be a true Israelite? And in our day, a true believer. We've already looked at a long list of things that are not required. Do you remember? At least things that do not in themselves make one a true trial of God. They're listed there for you if you weren't here in verses 2 through 5. He talks about the adoption, he talks about divine glory, he talks about receiving of the law, he talks about temple worship, he talks about promises. And then he talks about the patriarchs. What were they? They were privileges that the Jewish people were given by God. And they were important spiritual privileges. Just like being born in a Christian home is an important spiritual privilege. But being born in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. They do not bring salvation in and of themselves. Not even being in the line that produced the Messiah is advantageous for salvation. That doesn't make you a Christian. See, there's only one answer. And Paul has already developed it fully in the earlier parts of this letter. We know what it is. It's what? It's faith. It's saving faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God and as your Savior. It is belief that Jesus died in our place, taking our sin upon Himself, and that by faith in Him, we're delivered from that punishment that we deserve because we have transgressions and sins against God. And instead, we're counted as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. Not our own. We don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. So the true Israel of the Old Testament, what did they do? They looked forward to Jesus' coming. They believed on him whom they had not yet even known. The true Israel in the New Testament, what do they do? They look back in time. They believe on him who has come and whom they do know. And Paul's chief example here, and from Romans 4, was really Abraham. I mean, Abraham, in the Old Testament, was not saved because he was circumcised. Because he was declared, it says, to be righteous before God. God made that declaration in Genesis 15, 6. And that was years before he was ever even circumcised you can't say Abraham was saved by keeping the law. Because no one, not even Abraham, is able to keep the law perfectly and fully. The law brings only wrath. The law brings only condemnation. The law was given to show us our inadequacy and our sinfulness before God. And besides that, the law was not even given until after the time of Moses. And that was 400 years after Abraham's time. Well, how then was Abraham saved, you might ask? It was by faith, which is what made Abraham a true Israelite. In Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Paul says this, The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. As Paul will show us, it is the call of God, followed by faith, that makes one a true member of God's family. So that's natural Israel and spiritual Israel. Well, let's bring it up to date for us here today. Let's think of cultural Christians and true Christians. Because it's also true for those who call themselves Christians. What's true? The simple fact that not all who call themselves Christians or who even thought of as Christians, are Christians in the true sense. There was an English writer named Leslie Stephen, and he said this. He's quoted as saying, the word Christian has become one of the vaguest epithets in the language. And that's true even more today. I mean, when you stop and you think about it, to many Jews, the name Christian is nearly synonymous with Goy or Gentile. So that for them, the world is divided basically into two great parts, the Jews and the what? The Christians. Other people speak of Christian nations. Well, what do they mean by that? They they usually talk of the, the Western nations. Used to be Europe. Now it's kind of the United States, Canada, maybe. I mean, when you look at the cultural life of our nation, it's definitely inconsistent with being Christian. When you have men who are men who think they're women going into women's I mean, we got issues. We got major issues going on in our country. See, only a small portion of people in some of these countries ever even attend a, a worship service on a Sunday. I mean, think of the population of our, our area. What are most people doing this morning? Going to the mountains, going to the beach, going to... W- I get it. They work hard. They want a day off. I understand that. But a lot of those people, if you ask them, they'd say, Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. See, what's happening? Obviously, it is a case of, of, of there being many who bear the name Christian, beloved, but are, they're not actually Christians. Well, what is a true Christian? That's what we want to ask ourselves. What is a true Christian? The name itself gives us a clue. It literally means a Christ one. Christian, a Christ one. The first time this name was used, it was used in Antioch of Syria in the early days when they began to expand the gospel beyond Israel and the Palestinian area there. Now, if you know anything about Antioch, it was an immoral place. It was not a good place to be. It had several great temples, and they had all this cultic prostitution Sexual immorality going on. The moral tone of the city, one writer says, was so bad that Antioch had become a byword for depravity in the ancient world. So in this degenerate city of Antioch, God planted in his sovereignty a body of genuine believers whom the the pagans of Antioch began, this is the first place they were called Christians. See, we we get things all mixed up. We think somehow the Christians called themselves Christians. No, they didn't. They didn't call themselves Christians. It was the pagans who called them Christians. Why did they call them Christians? They They had other names for themselves. The Christians called themselves people of the way, saints, separated ones, disciples, brothers... Jews did not call them Christians because Christ means Messiah. And the Jews would never have called the sect of the Nazarene by that name. See, the believers were first called Christians by the heathen. And they were called Christians for obvious reasons. Because they really enveloped Christ himself in their lifestyle. They were followed so closely after Christ that the pagans could hardly think of someone who was of that bent as being somehow not a follower of Christ. They had to think of Jesus. They had to think of the Nazarene. Why? Because they're they're following his ways. They were Christ's people. Well, what does that mean? First of all, Christians believe in Christ. It's there in your outline. Christians believe in Christ. The Christ of the early Christian community and of all true Christians everywhere is the Christ of the New Testament, which means that he's the Son of God who became a man for our salvation. This is the one on whom believers believe and call themselves Christians. Moreover, this belief was more than just an intellectual conviction, you might say. Um, faith or belief has basic three elements. First, it is the intellectual. Obviously, you have to understand who Jesus is, what he's done for you. That's why we go out and we preach the gospel, because we want people to hear the good news. But secondly, there's kind of a, call it the warming of the heart. In other words, somehow you're being moved by Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. They hear the gospel message, and you know what? It connects with them. They say, wow, that's incredible that somebody would do that for me. And thirdly, there's the aspect of personal commitment. And probably this is the most important part of all. It means giving oneself to Christ, giving oneself to Jesus, becoming his, taking up his cross, becoming his disciple. See, this is what these believers in Antioch had done. They had followed Christ Full heartedly. And and people saw it very clearly. So when people saw them. they That's a Christian. (laughs) They had committed themselves to Jesus so thoroughly. That the pagans who looked on them said. They are Christ ones. They are Christians. So you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe in Christ. Secondly. Christians follow Christ. And this is kind of a second characteristic of these first Christians in antioch and it should be a, it is a characteristic of all true Christians throughout history. It basically boils down to a matter of commitment i mean when you when you call yourself a christian you 're a follower of Jesus Christ. you follow Christ if they believed on him in a saving way and not merely by some abstract intellectual assentment of his deity then they began to follow after him and they began to do what he laid out for them to do that path is 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 a path of obedience see you can't come to jesus as savior and then say well I, i just want the salvation part i don't want the lord part now, the church beats up on there. oh, that's lordship salvation, you know, that's not biblical. Yes, it is. You can call it whatever you want. It's impossible for you to come to Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord. Because it's, it's one and the same. You can't, you can't separate Christ out like that for your own convenience, And that's what the church has done for ages. And that's why the churches are full of people who call themselves Christians. They're not living the Christian life. So then we give them another title that's not biblical. Well, they're backslidden. What does that mean? They're carnal. No, they're probably not converted. They're probably not even a true believer. They think they are. And the church piles accolades on them. So so that helps them in their disbelief. See, this path is a path of obedience. And as you walk along the path of obedience in the Christian life, when you're truly converted, you become increasingly more and more like the one you're following. doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are. Most of us have a long way to go. Trust me. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll be real honest with you. But the the, the point of the fact is, is that, you know what? I'm not the person I was before. I'm not the person I was even last week. I'm continually being renewed. I'm continually growing in my Christian walk, in my Christian commitment to Christ. I'm continually desiring to follow Christ. That's what a true believer does. And that's a very important dimension that unfortunately is not being taught a lot today. To be a Christian means to believe on Jesus, surely, but it also means to be following after Jesus and becoming more like him each and every day. Well, thirdly, not only do we believe in Christ, we follow Christ, but we witness to Christ. And I think this was very clear in Antioch. It was very apparent that Jesus was their Savior because that's all they were talking about. They couldn't help but talk about the Savior. The name of Jesus was constantly on their tongues. The good news of the gospel constantly was on their hearts. The glorious message of his glory was in the forefront of their minds all the time. They were always looking for others whom they could tell about Jesus Christ. They were always praying. They were always working how to better their witness so that others might be saved. I mean, that is so significant in this respect that the first great missionary movement of the church began where? Right here in Antioch. Why? Because they were so on fire for the Lord. We're told in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 to 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and they sent them off. I mean, that's a pretty big send-off. You're sending Barnabas and Saul off? Who's going to fill their spots? They weren't really concerned about that. They knew that God was sending them off, so God would raise somebody else. And Paul undertook these three missionary journeys, we know, at the direction of this church. And with accountability to it. And at the end of each assignment, he would report back to the congregation what God had done to save other Gentiles and, and other Jews through him. I mean, that's why we not only support missionaries, beloved, that's why we encourage people to go on mission trips. I mean, it's easy to put a check in the, in the, in the till, you know, and say, yeah, I'm going to support This. It's it's a whole other commitment level to say, you know what? I'm going to go see this firsthand. Because I I guarantee you, it will will radically change your view of your life, of of who God is, of the need for the gospel to go out. I can't emphasize that enough. It's it's so important. And Jesus himself, don't forget, Acts 1.8, he tells us, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth are you witnessing for Christ I pray you are I mean we had a wonderful turnout at, at, when, when Dave did the way of the master class we're going to do another one in the fall but I mean I, I am it, it's, it's overwhelming to me we live in this area and there's so many lost people. And it's not that we don't have the freedom. I mean, I know uh, uh, our, our one, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, our one friend with the evangelism team that goes out, um, went, he goes down to Redwood City once a month, down to the courthouse there and where all the people are on Friday nights. And he sets up a board and he starts preaching the gospel. Hector went last, last month, ask, ask Hector about it. I mean, it it was a wonderful experience. And people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was there some resisting? Well, sure. But what do you expect them to do? Oh, we're so glad you're here to tell us that we're sinners and that we need a savior. No. But even if one, just one person connects the dots and God saves them. What a wonderful thing to be used of God in that way. We ordered some track racks, and we're going to be putting some tracks back in the lobby. And we encourage you to take those and use them. Use them. Just give them out. Even if you don't say anything, just give it to them. You're getting the truth of the message of the gospel out. Well, the fourth thing here, Christians learn more and more about Christ. And this kind of hits home for us as a church. It's the fourth characteristic of a true Christian. They want to learn more about Jesus. They can't get enough. We're told of the Christians at Antioch that after Barnabas had gone to their city and he encouraged this infant church in its faith, that he went to Tarsus in Turkey to look for Paul, whom he remembered from the early days. And when he found him, he brought, back, he brought him back to Antioch. So it says this in verse 26 of Acts 11. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Why? Because they were hungry. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't imagine going without teaching. And that was so significant because immediately after that, it was the Christians at Antioch. They'd been carefully taught about Jesus. That's when they were first called Christians. It made an impact on their lives. They wanted to learn more and more about Christ. And as they learned about Christ, they became more like him. Their love for him intensified even more. Their witness for him even broadened more. See, I think today in the church, we need a time for self-examination. We need a time where we're not looking at our neighbor. We're not nudging our, nudging our spouse. We're saying, okay, God, let me focus on my own heart, on my own commitment to Christ. See, the point of all this is that each of us who calls ourselves a Christian should be led to self examination. That's not a bad thing. Do we believe in assurance of salvation? Definitely. The Bible teaches that. But it's also healthy to ask this question Am I a true Christian? Or am I a Christian in name only? It's a very serious question. It's a necessary one. Think about it. If Israel, with all their spiritual benefits, the advantages that Paul mentions in in Romans 9 there in the beginning, I mean, that, that could have been thousands, millions, who were not true Israel. It's certain that the visible church of Jesus Christ today is filled with many who are actually non-believers. They've never come to Christ. They have all the accolades of Christian faith. But the one thing they lack is that faith. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Paul told the Corinthians this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's something we're commanded to do. That's something we're instructed to do by Scripture. Even in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says this, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Well, how can we test ourselves? How can we be sure? How can we make sure that we are true Christians? There's a couple things here. First of all, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe on Christ? The first requirement is faith. This isn't something you conjure up. This is something you owe to God and you ask for. Give me the faith to believe. Faith is the point of of contact with the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul told the Philippian jailer this. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ask yourself, have I believed on Jesus? Not have I believed on him in broad cultural terms. (laughs) I mean, anyone in the Western world might agree to that. Especially if you've been raised in a Christian home or maybe you attend a church. I'm asking you to ask this. Have I been touched by the knowledge of Jesus' death for me? Have I committed myself to him? Am I serious about following after him? Or is it just kind of a thing I do once a week? Am I serious about obeying his commands? Am I serious about pleasing him? See, all those things would indicate that you believe in Christ. Secondly, are you following after Jesus? The first question obviously leads to the next. Am I actually a Jesus follower? The way Jesus called his followers was by the words what? What did he say? Remember I said, remember these two words? Follow me. That's what he said. He didn't say, oh, go do this and go. No, he said, just follow me. Follow me. Become like me. Allow your life to be like my life. And when they did follow him, what happened? Their lives were radically redirected. I mean, in the Gospels, we see people who were fishermen. Making probably an okay living at it. But when Jesus said, follow them, they began to follow Jesus. They became fishers of men. One was a tax collector. Probably a pretty profitable job in his day. But after he had followed Jesus Christ, he became concerned more with the currency of heaven than the currency of the earth. See, nobody who has begun to follow Jesus Christ has ever been entirely the same or walked in the same path afterwards. That's just a misnomer. Are there a lot of people that profess Christ? Yes. We all have people on our list, our prayer list, that we're praying for that maybe walked an aisle, raised a hand, came to Christ now they're living in the world and they're living in sin and they deny Christ. How do you explain that? Simple. They were never saved. It was an emotional response. It was an outward obligation that they fulfilled I mean, look throughout Scripture of, I mean, see if you can find somebody who, who was a genuine follower of Christ, who their life was, not, life was not radically transformed. So ask yourself the question: Has your life been redirected? Is there anything I'm doing now that I did not do before, or would not be doing? Were I not committed to Jesus, and are there things maybe in my life that I used to do before I came to Christ, and now I, I stopped doing them? Is Jesus my very own Lord and Savior? Those are the questions you need to ask. Thirdly, do I testify to Christ this This is hard really to to examine this for ourselves because it 's easier for some to talk to Jesus about to talk to others about Jesus than others personality comes in and everything else but it's an important question do you testify of Christ i mean let me let me put it this way if you have never spoken to anyone about Jesus Christ in your faith how can you suppose that you really care about him that you really love him Not to mention caring and loving the person that you're talking about who needs a Savior. Nominal, cultural Christians do not talk about Jesus because it's not the political correct thing to do. They're content to let everyone believe as he or she likes. We don't want to impose anything on anyone. They wouldn't think of trying to impose their beliefs on other people. But see, not all who are Christians are true Christians. Just as the text says, not all who descended from Israel are Israel. So examine yourself. Do you testify of Jesus with your words, with your life? And the last thing here, are you learning about Christ? Are you learning about Jesus? I mean, this is really indicative of a genuine Christian. Am I trying to learn more and more about Jesus Christ, my Savior? Do I know more about him today than I did yesterday? Do I know more about him today than the day I was converted? I mean, I I know people who call themselves Christians. They never go to Bible study. They never take notes. They never listen to anything other than maybe a Sunday sermon when they go to church. They never seriously study the Bible on their own at all. They're always looking for that quick shot to get them through the the week. Then they're off busy doing things in the world. I mean, if you're one of them, how can you think of yourself as a Christian when you have no interest at all in learning about the one who gave himself for you? How can you consider yourself a believer when you really don't care about Jesus? I mean, today we hear all this talk about... Revival. Praying for revival. Our country, poor. you need to pray for revival. I mean, obviously the drift is downward. But I want to leave you with this question. What is revival? When we pray for revival, what are we praying for? Well, think about the word in and of itself. Revive. It means to bring something back to life. It's reviving of the alleged people of God. And it's always preceded by an awakening in which many who thought themselves to be true Christians come to the right senses. They're convicted by the Lord and they recognize that they are not new creatures in Christ and that all is not well with their soul. And so they fall to their knees and they ask God for forgiveness. See, beloved, revival begins in the church, not in the world. We got it backwards. It begins with people like you and me. I mean, do we need revival? Definitely. But I don't see it happening. I want it to happen. But if it happens... It has to begin right here, right in our own heart. I encourage you this next week to look up a song by Keith Green. I mentioned this once before. It's called A Sleep in the Night, I think. It's a wonderful song. And it talks about the lethargic nature of the church today. And um, the words are very, very convicting. And I, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll try to have them next week for you if you can't find it, but uh, the artist is Keith Green, and the song is Asleep in the Night. It's just a, uh, it's a wonderful song. With that being said, I, I pray that you would leave here with these, quest- these questions pondering you, maybe bothering you a bit. That's okay. We're to examine our faith. You know, I'm not here to call doubt into your life. But if you're not seeing these things take place in your life, that should be an alarm for concern. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that next week as we begin to look at your sovereignty, Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty in our salvation. That, Father, this isn't up to us, but, Lord, you sovereignly work through the preaching of your word, through the teaching of the gospel. Lord, I don't know who's here today, I don't know what questions might be pondering in their heart. But Lord, I pray that if there's a uneasiness, when you look at your life and you realise, wow, you know, I, I don't really have an interest in spiritual things. I do just kind of come to church once a week to punch the punch the card and let people know I'm still here if there's not that deep-seated desire to grow and to share your faith with others and to enjoy the fellowship we share as believers, I pray that you would examine your own heart, that you would come before God and say, Lord, let me know for sure that my faith is real. Help me not to just focus on some event that maybe happened years ago in some church somewhere where I raised my hand or I walked down an aisle. But Lord, what have you done for me lately? How have you changed me lately? Am I the same person I was last week or last year? Or is it evident that you're changing me and you're growing me and you're making me more like your son? None of us are perfect. But Lord, we thank you. When we're imperfect, when we sin, your grace is there. Your forgiveness is there. And our salvation is secure in you. And Lord, I pray that you would give each heart here gathered this morning that assurance of their faith. If not, I pray that they would come to you directly and just lay it lay it all out before you. You already know what's in their heart. We don't need to pretend with you an all-knowing God. And Father, we thank you and we praise you. If, if there's any here today who have yet to cry out to Christ, I pray that their heart would be shown that there is only way, one way out of their sinfulness, and that's to turn from their sin to the Savior. And Lord, even if they cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that you'll hear when it comes from a genuine heart, that you can impart new life and faith and belief and, and joy and forgiveness, grace into their lives. We ask you to do this in Jesus' precious name. and All God's people said.